This podcast is sponsored by our partner, QXMD. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based medicine and clinical practice. Check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you and calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools. Try them today at qxmd.com apps. Again, that is qxmd.com apps. Welcome to the Critical Care Obstetrics Podcast. The next few episodes will be following up from our discussion with Miranda Clausen, an AFE survivor, and now the founder and director of the AFE Foundation. We will be doing a three-part series on amniotic fluid embolism, or AFE, to include history, diagnostic criteria, management, and how you can prepare your team with simulation. My name is Julie Arafay, and I'm the Director of Simulation at Clinical Concepts and Obstetrics. And I'm here with my partners, Stephanie Martin, Director of Medicine, and Suzanne McMurtry-Baird, Director of Nursing at Clinical Concepts and Obstetrics. I want to talk briefly about what we're going to be doing in these next three episodes. Episode one, we're going to talk about the definition, history, and incidence of AFE. We're also going to talk about pathophysiology and the clinical picture that you're going to see. Then in episode two, we're going to spend the entire episode on clinical management because that is one of the issues that most people are really concerned about is managing these patients. The last episode, we're going to take a case study and put all of these parts together, including how you can prepare your team using simulation. So what is amniotic fluid embolism? Well, as we all know, it's catastrophic and it's unpredictable. It's a reaction that the patient has to amniotic fluid entering the bloodstream. It's assumed to be very rare and have a very high mortality rate. So let's look at some numbers. Two to six episodes occur during 100,000 births or deliveries. That's likely an overestimate. And the reason it could be an overestimate is that AFE is a clinical diagnosis only. There's no test or no study that can be done that clearly defines what happened to a patient as AFE. It's diagnosed basically on what happened to the patient and what signs and symptoms that patient presented with. We do know that 5.5% of maternal deaths in the U.S. are associated with AFE. So it is, it is one of the um, causes of maternal mortality and a very important topic to review. So when does it occur? Most often occurs during labor in intrapartum period or postpartum. So it often occurs within either intrapartum period or 30 minutes postpartum. 70% of the time that's during labor. 11% of the time after vaginal birth, and 19% of the time during cesarean birth. So the, the statistics are pretty even, uh, depending on the type of delivery the patient has. 90% of the time, however, the onset is immediate and catastrophic. And this is what makes AFE one of those clinical 
conditions, that is a very concerning one for for our healthcare providers. Yeah, this is, uh, I want to talk a little bit about prognosis too, because the word catastrophic is so important when you think about the morbidity and mortality with these patients. And we've learned a lot through the years, because I remember when we first started lecturing or I did on amniotic fluid embolus back in the 90s, early 90s, we thought the mortality was somewhere around 86%. And then a, um, a paper came out with some harder data on actually reviewing cases of amniotic fluid embolus. It was somewhere around 60% uh, of all patients who had a, a presumed amniotic fluid embolus uh, would die. And now the more modern estimates are somewhere between 20 and 40%. So I think that we've done a better job at recognizing not just the diagnosis, but also in our management. Um, and hopefully that will continue to decrease the more we get into better management and uh, earlier recognition. And, um, and, and, and we'll talk more about that in a little bit. It's important to also state that of those patients that survive amniotic fluid embolus, many, um, and in some papers up to 85% of survivors have a neurologic injury due to extended hypoxia. So early recognition and management, as we talk about in the second episode, is going to be very important. Um, As far as infant mortality is around 20 to 60% with 50% of uh, the neonatal survivors have a neurological injury as well. And again, that is uh, related to the pathophysiology of the mother. And then the recurrence risk is really unknown. Um, I know many of these survivors uh, have a very, um, it's a fear of having another pregnancy. So we really don't know how that would look if they were to uh, have another pregnancy. So we don't know, uh, have a lot of data on recurrence risk. And then of those survive, not just neurologic injury is a possibility, but other significant morbidity. And that could be either physical or uh, mental uh, morbidity um, in for those patients, those survivors. And I I would point you back to uh, our previous episode of our interview of Miranda Clausen. She is a survivor of amniotic fluid embolism. And uh, I know many of the listeners from her Amniotic Fluid Embolism Foundation uh, may be listening and would concur with that as well. Other uh, things that we would like to talk about is risk factors. So a lot of people will say, well, so what are the risk factors? Uh, associated with amniotic fluid embolism. And I want to stress the emphasis that amniotic fluid embolism cannot be predicted. Okay, so we cannot predict which patients are going to have an amniotic fluid embolus and who is not. So that needs to be made clear. Um, So based upon what we've reviewed in case studies, there have been some um, proposed risk factors, but certainly... None of these, when you hear them, you'll think, oh, I'm going to start looking for an amniotic fluid embolus in these patients because they're so common. So the first being cesarean delivery. Um, We just saw the data or just listened to the data about vaginal birth versus cesarean birth, and they're fairly uh, similar. Um, 
but if you're having a cesarean birth, um, that has been associated as a risk factor, but you know, with 33% of the patients in the United States, hopefully that number is coming down in your state, uh, having a cesarean birth, then you would think you would see a lot more amniotic fluid embolus if that was a risk factor. So uh, again, unpredictable. Operative vaginal birth is another uh, risk factor that's been labeled in the literature. Placental abnormalities. So whether it was a patient who had a placental previa, a placental abruption, or an abnormal uh, placentation like an accreta, those patients have had a higher risk. And then patients who have preeclampsia or eclampsia, those are also labeled as risk factors. But again, unpredictable, cannot be predicted based upon even the risk factors that I just listed. So it can happen in any patient. Now, another issue with amniotic fluid embolus that has come up is the name, amniotic fluid embolism. It suggests that amniotic fluid is somehow causing a physical blockade of an amniotic emboli as the etiology. And whereas that certainly could happen if it were very, very, very uh, large volumes of amniotic fluid uh, emboli entering in the maternal system, it is more a pro-inflammatory anaphylactic type reaction to amniotic fluid entering the circulation versus a physical blockade of amniotic fluid in the pulmonary vasculature of the mother. Thus, the reason that some have suggested a name change instead of calling it amniotic fluid embolism, the name to be changed as anaphylactic syndrome of pregnancy. Um, And that name certainly is used in the literature, and you may see anaphylactic syndrome of pregnancy used. Um, but in the clinical practice, I've seen mostly still the use of amniotic fluid embolism as the common terminology for this phenomenon that happens. And I think uh, a phenomenon is something that you've got to remember again in this discussion. So one of the big myth busters of this is, is that this fetal debris commonly found in a woman on autopsy um, with an amniotic fluid embolism, or they've had a clinical diagnosis of an amniotic fluid embolism, and on, tops, on autopsy, they find fetal debris in the maternal circulation. So that has fed some of the... Um, thought that this is some kind of physical blockade. But again, that is also commonly found, or the fetal debris is also commonly found in maternal circulation of women without any symptoms of amniotic fluid embolism or this phenomenal uh, reaction to the amniotic fluid. So for example, when we were doing Swan-Gans catheters on patients, we would do some aspirations for blood testing. And we found amniotic uh, fluid to contain, be contained in the maternal circulation pulmonary vasculature. So these catheters sitting there in the pulmonary vasculature on aspiration, we found fetal debris and amniotic fluid in that blood sample. 
and these patients were hemodynamically stable. They were not having any clinical symptoms of amniotic fluid in their um, physical assessment. And so this is not diagnostic of amniotic fluid embolus. Um, and that's a big um, error that we make at final diagnosis in patients who have had mortality, uh, they have died, they've had an autopsy, and because they had this fetal debris in, debris in the maternal circulation, they've been labeled as amniotic fluid embolus, and they didn't necessarily have an amniotic fluid embolus at all. They could have died from hemorrhage. They could have died uh, from another complication. So again, am fetal debris in the maternal circulation is not diagnostic of amniotic fluid embolus. So again, AFE, clinical diagnosis, and we're going to stress that um, as we go into the uh, criteria for diagnosis. Um, so autopsy is important to exclude other causes of this uh, of uh, reasons for a maternal death, but not to confirm amniotic fluid embolus. So as amniotic fluid enters the maternal bloodstream, and we know this occurs at every delivery, uh, I jokingly say we have never seen a dry birth. Um, and you hear that term. Amniotic fluid enters the maternal bloodstream in every delivery and can in during labor as well. And there is, in an amniotic fluid embolus, there's going to be widespread pro-inflammatory immune response to that introduction of the amniotic fluid. So again, an anaphylactic type reaction. And that is the phenomenon, the, the cause of the pathophysiology in amniotic fluid embolus. Yeah, and what we don't understand clearly, I mean, there's a lot we don't understand about amniotic fluid embolism, but one of the things we don't understand clearly is why do some people have amniotic fluid and tissue introduced into their bloodstream and have no reaction at all, and yet others get this introduced into their bloodstream and they have this catastrophic cascade of events leading to amniotic fluid embolism clinical presentation. So I think that's one of the big questions that remains unanswered is why the variation in response. And I remember my first um, amniotic fluid embolism. I was a brand new attending. Um, I literally day one of uh, being an attending and uh, uh, after graduating from residency and the young woman was um, my only normal laboring patient on the board. We were very, very busy and everybody was very high risk, but she was post-term being induced simply because she was post-term. And once she was complete and pushing, she developed um, a concerning fetal heart rate tracing and hypoxemia. Uh, I went to, I got called to the, to the room. By the time I had arrived, the anesthesiologist had already been trying to address her pulmonary edema uh, at that point, she was starting to fill her face mask with fluid, uh, and I had to make a decision about whether or not we were going to take this patient back to the operating room or how are we going to get this baby delivered while we're trying to resuscitate mom. Well, mom was not in arrest. Mom was in uh, respiratory failure, but uh, she was not in cardiopulmonary arrest, so we needed to try and stabilize her before we just took her back to the operating room. Decided to do, perform a forceps-assisted vaginal birth because she was so close to delivering. 
when I went to place the first uh, blade of the forceps, she began pouring blood from her urethra and uh, was in, you know, florid DIC. So at this point, we took her back to the operating room because we knew she needed to be intubated. We knew she needed to be delivered. And unfortunately, this mom and baby did not survive. She uh, went into cardiac arrest um, when we got back to the operating room and we lost both mom and baby. And that was devastating for me as a brand new attending and, uh, you know, really made me question my future in medicine and whether I should even be a doctor anymore and whether I was qualified to do all of this. But what I ultimately did was, you know, picked myself up and decided I needed to understand everything I could possibly understand about this. And that's when I learned there really was not a lot we understood about this. And this was, you know, in the early 90s, and things were different. And um, we've since gained a lot of information, thanks uh, to a large degree for the AFE registry and the AFE foundation, but um, there's still a lot we don't know. But recent work has tried to um, codify or establish some sort of standards to making this diagnosis. Because when you have something that is just a clinical diagnosis and you can't do a lab test or an x-ray or imaging to figure out or confirm definitively what happened, then there's the possibility that a lot of people will get labeled as having this condition that don't and vice versa. You miss people who had the condition, um, uh, but, but weren't recognized or declared as such. So recently, the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, um, in cooperation with the AFE Foundation, published four criteria that should be considered diagnostic for amniotic fluid embolism. So those four criteria are sudden onset of cardiopulmonary arrest or hypotension and respiratory compromise in conjunction with each other. The second is overt DIC, typically after you have the hypotension respiratory compromise or arrest. And then these things need to happen during labor or within 30 minutes of delivery of the placenta and in the absence of fever during labor. And that absence of fever is important because sepsis and septic shock can present very similarly with respiratory uh, um, and cardiovascular collapse and ultimately even DIC. So that fever is criteria is intended to try and discriminate between those patients who have a true AFE and those patients who actually have um, septic shock. Now, the other point I want to make there is that the DIC happens after hypotension and respiratory compromise or cardiac arrest, which is um, also supposed to help differentiate between a hemorrhage-related event and an event due to AFE. So with hemorrhage, you would typically expect the DIC to appear first, followed by the arrest or hypotension and, and respiratory compromise. So the timing is also kind of important. So there are a lot of different clinical things that can present or make you think that you're dealing with an amniotic fluid embolism. Like, I mean, anaphylaxis is one of them. So obviously you need to be considering, could this patient have gotten something that she's reacting to? Did she recently receive a medication, a transfusion, et cetera? Um, aortic dissection, myocardial infarction, hemorrhagic shock, um, septic shock, as I talked about. Uh, eclampsia, these patients can, you know, go into arrest or have cardiovascular collapse as well. PE is a big one that I think would be easily confused with amniotic fluid embolism. And then of course, stroke. And you can see when you listen to that list of differential diagnosis, if the patient ultimately succumbs to whatever condition she's dealing with, 
an, an autopsy can help you diff- and, and identify many of those things on that list. So the autopsy really is important if we're not successful in resuscitating this patient. And uh, fortunately, our ability to re- successfully resuscitate these patients has improved over the years, but, but autopsy is important when, it's, when we're not successful. Now I want to talk about the registry, the amniotic fluid embolism registry, because it's really significantly added to our understanding of AFE and um, how it presents and and uh, and how it doesn't present. Really, the registry, if you're not familiar with it, is an international database where any of us can submit a case to be um, considered for the registry. If you think you had a patient who had an amniotic fluid embolism, no matter what the outcome, you can submit her information um, to the database uh, and and they will review it and determine whether it's likely to represent an amniotic fluid embolism, does it meet the criteria or not, and, and, um, and then gather her clinical information so that we get more data about AFE and know you know, how hopefully learn more about how to deal with this, how to counsel patients, et cetera. This database is in collaboration with a number of entities, including Baylor College of Medicine, the Amniotic Fluid Embolism Foundation, and NICHD. So, you know, some big, big players trying to gather all this information. What's interesting is that recently they published, uh, I think about 115 cases from the registry that were submitted. And about half of those that were submitted actually met the classic criteria for AFE that I described a minute ago. But interestingly, and I think this is important, about a quarter did not have an amniotic fluid embolism at all. So when they reviewed the records, it was very clear that the patient had another thing that was typically on that list of differential that I suggested earlier, hemorrhagic shock, septic shock, PE, et cetera. About 18% of the time, they could not determine what was actually going on, whether this patient had an AFE or something else. And about 12% were felt to have some atypical version of an AFE. And I've had patients with an atypical AFE. I'm sure you can think back in your career and go, gosh, I wonder if this patient had an AFE, but maybe they didn't meet all the criteria cleanly. Um, So perhaps they had hypotension and um, respiratory compromise, but maybe not the Florida DIC and we were able to resuscitate them or some combination of, of abnormalities that were not, that did not meet criteria for the classical AFE. So they may still have it. So if you think you might have a patient with an amniotic fluid embolism, submit their information and let the experts review the cases and determine whether or not they actually did uh, meet the criteria. Now, for those of you who have um, experienced an AFE and are a survivor, or you've managed a patient with an AFE, you probably have some experience of this preceding aura. So think back to those cases, and um, it's typical or it's common, about a third will will describe some sort of an, uh, maybe a sense of impending doom. You know, we've all had that patient, and fortunately, much of the time, nothing happens, but many of us have probably had that patient where they just felt something wasn't right. They weren't going to make it. This That impending doom is really the way to describe it. And one of the amniotic fluid embolism patients that I managed um, in particular, she was in active labor. This is a different patient. She was about four centimeters and she told her nurse, something's not right. Something's not right. Something bad is going to happen. And within about three minutes, she had a catastrophic cardiovascular collapse due to an amniotic fluid embolism. Fortunately, we were able to do a perimortem cesarean section or resuscitative cesarean section and um, save the baby, but mom could not be resuscitated successfully. 
Other preceding auras, I mean, uh, change in mental status, anxiety, agitation. They might have a seizure that you think is eclampsia, and then they have this cascade of other events, nausea, vomiting, chills. There's kind of a variety of different things, but that sense of impending doom obviously concerns people quite a bit. And now I don't want you all to be terrified. Uh, you know, oh my gosh, we all have patients who are just flat out anxious and worried and just think nothing is going to go right. That has nothing to do with a true sense of impending doom. And I don't want you to be freaked out that every patient you manage now is going to have an amniotic fluid embolism. But, you know, we do want to stress that you need to listen to your patients. And if you're not familiar, the Centers for Disease Control has what they call Hear Her. And it's a campaign to encourage us as as obstetric healthcare providers to listen to our patients. So the HEAR, H-E-A-R, is an acronym for H stands for hear her. So actually listen to what your patient is saying, you know, and, and, and give them some credibility. Don't just blow them off if they're saying something that you don't believe or you don't know how to evaluate or whatever. Listen to them. Acknowledge their concerns and what they're saying. The E Suzanne, did you want to add something? Yeah, I I, I love this campaign, um, uh, listening to our patients. And so when we were playing uh, with that terminology or just reviewing that, we, we came up with a, a different acronym, not just to hear her, but to also think about what maybe the E and the A and the R stood for and how we might implement that into our clinical practice. Cause I think it's important to definitely listen to our patients, but we've got to um, do other things when we actually hear her and listen to that patient. So that's why I thought we, we would come up with this more actionable items on that uh, to playing off that campaign by the CDC and what that here really meant to us. So not just the H, but what does the E stand for in the A and the R? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. So it's one thing to say, listen to your patients, but then when you listen to your patients, then what next? Like, what are you going to do if they tell you something? So um, the H stands for hear, for hear her to actually listen to her, but we think the E stands for early warning signs. So, you know, we have other podcasts talking about early warning signs. You guys, if you listen to us, you know how obsessed we are with vital signs. Vital signs are vital, as Suzanne says. So, you know, what are her vital signs? You know, look and see if she meets criteria for any of the early warning signs that would require some subsequent action. And I want to remember, uh, re recall to all of you that there was a study published several years ago uh, by Larry Shields and others in California, and they were looking at implementing early warning signs. And one of the criteria that that allowed immediate escalation was the nurse being uncomfortable. So there, and they showed that that had validity and was a good predictor for actual real disease in the patients. So I want to empower all of you out there at the bedside that if you're uncomfortable, you need to do something about it, get help, whatever, but um, uh, don't just dismiss your discomfort and don't dismiss what your patient may be saying. So the H is for hear her, the E is for early warning signs, and the A is for assessment. So the patient's telling you something's wrong, whatever that may be, you're going to evaluate and see if she has any early warning signs uh, that might require some action, but do a complete assessment on your patient. Like, as the physician, I am more than happy for anyone to call me and say, 
something's not right with my patient. I need her to be evaluated. But what I also expect is to hear your assessment of the patient. This is what the patient says, and this is what my assessment of the patient is. And that should include vital signs. Right. And I, I agree. It, it may be assessment that you don't normally do or that at that particular juncture of your shift or, or whatever, but go and do a complete assessment. Listen to her lungs, you know, have her sit up and listen posterior to those breath sounds correlate that with your uh, pulse oximetry value. Maybe you don't even have a pulse ox on her at that time. Put it on, you know, really count her respirations and her heart rate. Uh, And it may be for more than 15 seconds uh, that you normally do count, listen to her heart, you know, do that full assessment. It's not just about looking at your fetal strip either, you know, but that is another clinical clue that may be going on. What does your fetal strip look like as well? So complete maternal assessment is so important. Totally agree. And, you know, it's typical for patients who are still pregnant when they're having, you know, the beginning of an amniotic fluid embolism to see changes in the fetal heart rate because maternal circulation is changing. And so you might see changes in the fetal heart rate before the mom has demonstrable, you know, hypotension or whatever, but um, it can be a first sign. So it shouldn't be limited to the fetus, but it should definitely include the fetus. And then the R stands for react or review. So you've listened to your patient, you've evaluated for any early warning signs, you've done your head to toe assessment on the patient. And now you know what to do because you have information that you can deal with. If you've got abnormal vital signs or some other abnormal clinical finding, then you're going to react to that. And the review part is, you know, sometimes we don't trust our gut, or maybe the abnormalities are subtle, or maybe there's nothing there at all, but your gut is still telling you there's something wrong get somebody else involved, get another nurse or your charge nurse to come in and make an evaluation of the patient with you to help see, is there, you know, something else you may be missing, or maybe their experience is different than yours. And that they have that different perspective that can really help you determine, is there something real or not? And what's our plan for follow-up going to be like, are we, okay, we didn't find anything this time. Are we going to check uh, vitals again in four hours or maybe going to re- reassess her in 15 or 30 minutes based on what you're evaluating, what you're finding? So important. And um, I, I would say that for physicians too, you know, uh, get a second opinion if you still are, you know, I, I know as a nurse, I'm just like, what am I missing? You know, what am I missing something? Should we look in another direction? And you know, the, the whole saying of, you know, two minds, you know, much better than just one. So maybe a different perspective from somebody else. And, and I I always appreciate somebody else coming in and looking over what I've done and maybe I'm not, I'm missing something. So it's part of that critical thinking piece that we, we discuss a lot too. Yeah. And as a physician, I, I would absolutely echo that. But I would also say, listen to your nurses. So it's, I will have a lot of conversations with nurses where um, I can tell that, that she's concerned about something, but maybe she doesn't know how to express it, or maybe I'm not acknowledging it. So similar to listen to the patient, I'll, I'll say, look, I am, are you having a concern that I'm not understanding that I'm not hearing, you know, let me know what it is. Am I missing something here? Because maybe I'm just not hearing what her concerns are, or maybe she doesn't know how to verbalize it. So to try and open up that conversation to allow it to take place. Right. And I, and I, from a patient perspective, imagine, you know, you're telling 
nurse or the physician, the midwife, I, I don't feel right. Something is, I, I have this sense of impending doom. I, I Something weird is going on or I feel like something bad is going to happen. Imagine from a patient perspective, if the nurse and the doctor actually, number one, heard you and they acknowledged that. I hear what you're saying and I'm going to do um, more assessment on you at this time. And um, I'm going to bring someone else into the room to make sure there's something I'm not missing or that we pull it all together because I want to do everything that I can to take good care of you. Imagine from a patient perspective, if you did that, they would be sitting there going, I have the greatest team taking care of me right now. And their family would too. And I think it's important that in that this campaign of Hear Her, that we, our action is, is related to that. So totally agree. So now we're in a transition to kind of get you ready for our next episode where we talk about management. I want to introduce again, these three cardinal findings that you're going to see in a patient who actually has an amniotic fluid embolism. So we take these really from the diagnostic criteria that were proposed, but the three hallmarks of an amniotic fluid embolism that we're going to talk more about how to manage are respiratory failure, number one, and that can be characterized by shortness of breath, hypoxemia, cyanosis, pulmonary edema, which can be very acute in onset. And then ultimately, um, once they're resuscitated, then they can develop ARDS. But in the acute phase, we're looking really at shortness of breath, hypoxemia, and pulmonary edema, hypotension, um, or cardiovascular collapse, which, you know, you'll start to see, obviously, the mean arterial pressure will go down, your SVR, systemic vascular resistance will decrease. And this is presumed to be released uh, due to the overwhelming um, effect of this release of prostaglandins and bradykinins, etc. And then ultimately, hemorrhage and DIC, where this is a consumptive coagulopathy because they're consuming all of their clotting factors um, and then they start bleeding and then you have massive hemorrhage as a result. So this is an interesting one where DIC typically happens before the bleeding. So with a hemorrhage patient, you have bleeding before the DIC. This is different. So we're going to talk about how to manage um, each one of those things. And to summarize kind of what we've covered today, if we if you remember nothing else, number one, Amniotic fluid embolism is a clinical diagnosis only, and it's not confirmed by the presence of fetal cells in the maternal circulation. Hallmark. And some key clinical findings, the three key clinical findings with amniotic fluid embolism are respiratory failure with hypotension or cardiovascular collapse, followed by hemorrhage and DIC. Thanks, Stephanie and Suzanne, for laying clear groundwork uh, on amniotic fluid embolism and preparing us for the next episode of this series, which is clinical management. And I know we are devoting an entire episode to that because I know that is where most people are really interested in hearing um, what we have to say. In that episode, we are going to feature resuscitative cesarean delivery as an option or when to uh, when that needs to occur, and we're also going to talk about the AOK protocol. So we look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you for listening. 
Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. You can learn more about our company at www.clinicalconceptsnob.com. You can also follow us on our Facebook page, Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics, on Twitter at OB Critical Care, and on Instagram at Critical Care OB. Email us or send us a direct message for suggestions on future podcasts. For a list of references on today's topic, go to readappqxmd.com slash apps or our website. Thanks for listening. This podcast and music was produced by Austin Bear. Are you looking to create a podcast? Please reach out to nashvillepodcast at gmail.com. Once again, that is nashvillepodcast at gmail.com.